Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, you're very welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. I assume, Murph and Ken, that you guys are watching Planet Earth 2 last night? Oh yeah. <laughs> God, I was, uh, for all of you playing at home who were betting on how long it would take Owen McDevitt to mention Planet Earth 2, yeah. well, I hope those of you who had marked two seconds in are laughing. So they're out in the jungle in Brazil, following a truly gigantic male jaguar. Oh yeah. As he stalked the river's edge hunting for prey. 300 pounds. Capybara. 300 pounds. He was a big... Well, no, he was looking after the Capybara, Mark, but... Oh, that's what we presumed he was after. Oh, yeah, of course. His eventual victim, though, a poor, innocent, 10-foot caiman. Kind of an alligator. A first cousin of an alligator, I believe, the caiman. Yeah. Uh, Looks exactly like an alligator to me, Ken, but hey, what do I know about the creatures that dwell in the waters in the jungle? All that Cayman was doing was minding his own business. In fact, the Cayman was trying to kill some of those capybaras. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, along comes the killer of killers, as the jaguar is known. Leaps into the water, attacks the Cayman at its weakest point. The base of the skull. The base of the skull. <laughs> Moments later, the jaguar emerges, carrying in its mouth the lifeless body of the poor Cayman. <laughs> well, if you're watching Ireland New Zealand on Saturday, you don't need me to tell you that Ireland were the Cayman in this week's Planet Earth analogy. Mm. With the All Blacks playing the role of the killer of killers, the large, ruthless... Violent male jaguar. Also targeting the base of the skull, of course. We can't forget that. That's exactly that. it. That's the point. That's, that's, mm. yeah. The first two. Oh, Murph, I was pouring over the entire episode to think of the best creatures to use with the mm. analogy. It was mm. the base of the skull part. That's precisely the reason that I've used the jaguar. Honestly, if, if there are eight episodes of Planet Earth 2, I don't want you coming in here on a Monday without an extremely close reference I'll to Planet Earth 2. I, will, I, see, I see that as a challenge. I'll jot it down now in my notes. The first two or three minutes were quite impressive okay. by New Zealand. Oh, sorry, I thought we were still talking about Planet Earth. No, the, the match. I mean, did Ireland didn't get the ball and they were already down seven points? That was, you'd have, you'd have to kind of, well, if I'd been at the Aviva and I would have stood and applauded. That wasn't what was happening, Ken. It was a feral atmosphere there. At mm. the, even the, the Merce beloved Hacker was, I wouldn't say it was jeered. It was 
but halfway through, during one of the quiet bits, one of the lulls in the haka, which isn't actually as impressive in person as it is on TV. Yeah. I found you, because you're not really seeing, you're just hearing something. But, uh, yeah, the fans roared their retort. The Irish team didn't do anything to uh, kind of respond, but the fans roared. I'm not sure if New Zealanders like that. I'm not sure if Murph cares. I think Murph is like, <laughs> why are we talking about the hacker again? It did sound as though the crowd was kind of disrespecting the... I would say that the some of the players... The might cra- have sorry, Ken, did you, Sorry. <laughs> what? Sorry, man. It's just I thought you said there that the crowd was aren't allowed to disrespect the... Well, the I just... I, I thought... I mean, I, I want I want to hear it personally. You know, I want to hear them scream. Oh, it's mic'd like. up. Don't worry. You can hear the whole. Thing. Aaron you Smith was doing whole. a lot of aggressive pointing towards the Irish team afterwards. I don't know if that was partly. It was obviously to do with Chicago, but maybe it was partly to do with your crowd or disrespecting our hacker. Aggressive pointing. Sorry, just I'm, it, I'm I'm going to continue to poor score every time the hacker is mentioned. on this Steve show. Hansen didn't take too kindly to being asked about the violent conduct in his post-match interview with Claire McNamara on RTTV. Talk to us about discipline. Uh, two sin binnings for you today, which could have been very costly, and a high penalty count against you. Yeah, well, you always want the ref to be consistent, don't you? So just leave it at that. It was a hard watch. Some of those tackles, weren't there? Was some, some dangerous element to them? I don't think so. I think some. You know, this is a moving game, and the first one. Uh, he got penalised and it was a head clash there was no arms involved in it at all and the one on the far side was obviously a little high and was across the, the shoulder so I don't think there was any malice in it but you know, the rugby is a shifting game when you've got ball carriers that move and, as well as the Irish do they're going to change direction so people are going to sometimes make mistakes you know, and sometimes people fall into tackles too Is there discipline something that concerns you? Oh the penalty count concerns me yeah In terms of the, the tackling though on the edge to that? No, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Do you want me to tell you that we're we're dirty side or something? Is that what you're saying? Or no? Okay. Well, then you, well, I've talked about it. So, do you want to talk about something else now? What? There you go. A man not apparently too used to post-match difficult questions post-match time. Yeah, I mean, look, we the the facts speak for themselves in terms of the sightings that have happened, the number of transgressions, the number of yellow cards. Obviously, the New Zealand management are going to defend their time, their side as any anybody would expect them to, but it's kind of irrelevant in terms of the repercussions that should come from the game. The New Zealand Herald put had an article, Meet Claire McNamara, the woman who took on Steve Hansen. It's kind of a bizarre article. It shows it juxtaposes this interview with a conversation she had with David Fitzgerald. I don't know, was it this year? Yeah, uh, I feel that the New Zealand Herald didn't quite put the... The Claire McNamara David Fitzgerald conversation in the context in which it was, which was required really for a fuller understanding. I mean, for instance, Claire had just lost a hurling championship game one nil, um, which uh, was described as one of the key reasons why Davy was as upset as he was. I mean, no scoring game. Yeah, this is ridiculous. The, the point they were making was that this is this uh, journalist who asked these qu- tough questions. Look how she got this mm. famous hurling manager into a into a bit of a. A muddle. She he kept trying to no comment, but then she kept getting stuff out of him. But Famously she couldn't calm hurling. She, yeah, she couldn't. Yeah, exactly. But she couldn't turn. She couldn't turn that on. Steve Hansen. He was able to handle this kind of stuff. Has this man never been asked? Asked to you know back who would, up? Who would ask him? Like the South Africans? <laughs> Come on, like. Well, yeah. Why? Why would they? They they they're, they're like, oh, Steve, can you come and do a seminar here? We've got a lot to learn from you. I mean, I don't understand, like. New Zealand is New Zealand are the top side in rugby. Mm-hmm. Ireland beat them a couple of weeks ago. Do you think that they're just going to let that happen again? No, I thought they were going to come those back. Those guys are going to put the boot down, the yeah, jack boot. I, yeah, I, well, I don't. 
They, they really are, they, need to do that, though. I, mean, I don't know why. They, I mean, their they, entire sense of national identity is bound up in winning games of rugby. Yeah, but not tackling they people would, around the head. I mean, this, that's why I, I think it's interesting. I mean, New Zealand were obviously good enough to beat us on Saturday. They've been good enough for the last 111 years to beat us, no matter what team shows up, no matter how they decide to play the game. So the idea that calling them out for a couple of really bad tackles... I mean that's just part of the. I mean it's, it's it. It may not be have been the decisive factor in the game, but at all you're doing there is saying some of those tackles were completely over the top and they weren't punished. And that's basically I, what. Are you surprised that New Zealand? I am actually used yeah. terror and intimidation to win a game of rugby against yeah. a team that had just beaten them. Yeah, I am actually because they're way well, better at rugby than everyone else. You on seem the to have an issue with the coach being asked that. Asked no, about it. No, I don't. I don't, I don't mind, but I, I am sure that he's he's very seldom being asked. That certainly not by the New Zealanders. And you know, thinking of the countries they play on a regular basis, I can't imagine they'd have too much of an issue with it either. Well, you apparently, know? people in New Zealand are none too happy with us in Ireland, besides Ken, for how this game has been covered. Because this is a bit of video from the New Zealand Herald. The two people talking here: Bernadine Oliver Kirby and the New Zealand Herald head of sport Trevor McEwen. I think Steve Hansen's right here. High-speed collision game. You know, a fairly bitter reaction by the Irish press. A little bit over the top, I think. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Uh, the media and the fans, uh, they're highly critical of it. In fact, they've gone to the extreme, haven't they? I- exactly right. I think they have gone over the top on it. I think it's... Um, um, in true Irish fashion. Yeah, it's quite hysterical. I think they obviously have... Um... That's the nature and that's the type and culture of Irish origin families that they're, <laughs> they're from. But to be honest, I don't even understand this stereotype that's being attached to us. We go over the top, we get hysterical, do we? Are Irish people known for being more hysterical than Actually, other I think nations? So. When Are you we? spend time yeah. in New Zealand, they see us as these wild cousins. Yeah. These people who, you know, if we just controlled our temperament, really? could be <laughs> quite a successful vessels. nation. Yeah, empty vessels make most noise, you know? This sort of the riotous disorder of the uh, the Irish. I mean, uh, yeah, New Zealand are, are are brutal though. I mean, they always have been. They, I've, it's it, it surprises me that anyone would be surprised that they would do that. Well, That's what they, they've always be, been about. Yeah, that. always. And the game is supposed to be changing. The game we're told by the people in charge is getting safer and will continue to do so. But it's clearly not. When, the game's getting more dangerous. Yeah, well, when they're That's allowed. The truth. When, when they're allowed to get away with what they did, they don't know, there have been two sightings. That's great. It doesn't help us much at yeah, this they stage. Are, they actually aren't historically particularly brutal uh, as a rugby nation. South Africa are probably known as being a bit worse than the French in the past. New Zealand, that's because they normally don't need to. And I don't think they actually, they were the better team in the Aviva. Like if you look at Bowden Barrett, they could nearly just pass to him all day and win the game. It's not just, just about winning that the game though. It's about more than winning the game. It's about terrifying the other they would have terrified the Irish players, I should say, a lot more if they had put seven tries on them, to be yeah. honest. It's they, not they about won the, by the, the scoreboard. It's, not a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a but France about bash, domination. But France bash Ireland up all the time and we still beat them most of the time. Well, you have to win as well. I mean, if you, you, know, if you lose the game, that's, that, that ruins everything. But No, it's different that we beat them in Chicago. It's the first time we've beaten them, so we saw something new about New Zealand in the Aviva. This is a team who actually feared us for the first time and this is how they'll play in a tight game. In the first five minutes, as you say, Ken, they were running away with it. They looked absolutely untouchable. And then somehow they were in a dogfight again. Ireland played brilliantly to get back into the game. 
And that's when New Zealand really start to, well, they broke the law in terms of high hits, but also just in terms of offside play, just some blatant transgressions of the law uh, that they kept getting away with. But we saw New New Zealand because we beat them for the first time. I, 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 think, I, think, this is, I think South Africa and Australia probably do face this quite a lot. We're going to have to get, almost given up on. Yeah, we're going to have to get used to the, to, uh, to the underside of New Zealand's boots. We are going to get a good idea of the pattern on the soles of their boots over the next few matches, I feel. Uh, well, we've had 111 years of it, to be honest. So, I mean, like uh, this idea that, that players are more hu- humiliated or are more scared of a team that are going in hitting high than they are of a team beating them by 70 points. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't I, I think that's half your players go off concussed. You're telling me that that uh, isn't free. you're telling me that that isn't a black eye for Ireland and a feather in New Zealand's cap. In the in the unspoken reality of what happens on a rugby field, well, France d- d- managed to dismiss a number of our players during the World Cup, but we still beat them mm. by twenty points. Yeah, you need to you need to win the game. Well, it was idiotic. If you can, tac- if you can win the game and beat up and beat up the other team, so that their players all have to go off seeing stars. The bigger the bigger point is why this isn't being refereed correctly. Not just by the referees, TMOs, everybody involved. How they how they can get away with this, and it's something we'll get into with Jerry and Matty in just a few minutes' time. Could be, yeah. Sorry, Ken. Did, did you not think that the referee, the TMO rather, was a little bit hasty in awarding the try? I'll tell you what happened there. The TMO, the first angle did look a bit like he probably got it down, but yeah. I still don't think it was conclusive. But he it, immediately announced, "Yeah, it's a, it's try. a try." Then paper says to him, "All right, are you sure? There's definite grounding, and you can see it in his." It's like when you get in a pub argument, Ken, with a friend, and you've made a point, <laughs> and he, argue, he argues back with some more coherent points, and you realise you're wrong, but you've made your point. You stick to that, your point and defend it to the death. <laughs> That's yeah, a, yeah. I, I thought he was saying less and less convincing, and he it was like, oh, look, I don't know, this is maybe unfair, I can't read into well, it. I mean, well, the, 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 clearer, second, the clearer the camera one. angle showed it wasn't a try, the less clear camera angle you weren't yeah, sure. Yeah, there's no angle that showed it was definitely a try, yeah. so therefore, how can you give the try? I exactly. thought, thought he was a bit hasty there, but um, maybe next time... Don't blurt out what you've decided before actually looking at the TV evidence. That is, after all, his his job, role. his sole job in the game. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting into. Yeah, you can take ten angles if you need to. We'll get into all this a little bit more in a second. Annie Murray looked like a tired, tired man last night, despite needing only two sets to fend off Novak Djokovic at the ATP Tour Finals. That confirmed his place the world's number one at the end of the year, at the end of 2016. Amazing. So if he'd had a three-and-a-half-hour semi-final against Milos Raonic, so the whole build-up was dominated by, to- dominated by talk that he would that would catch up with him against Djokovic. Djokovic was aiming to reclaim the number one spot. But, uh, no, he got the job done. He fairly took him apart, actually, quite convincingly, and then could barely lift his pen afterwards to mm. sign the camera like they do in some of these events. If, uh, I mean, you, you talk about uh, momentum, you know. like It's weird, I... The amount of people I spoke to about the Ireland-New Zealand game, they all said, ah, listen, Ireland, we're never going to win it. I really didn't feel that way. And I felt that if O'Brien had gotten over for the, the sort of the... The, the dummy line-out move. The dummy line-out yeah. move. You know, then maybe it's a different game. But it, people seem to, like, disregard this idea that momentum is a big thing in a sporting event. That, you know, if, if O'Brien goes over, then that ask, that does ask totally different questions. The third try gets scored earlier or later by New Zealand in the game. Whatever. The the idea that <laughs> if you're watching Murray last night against Djokovic, the same idea came into my head about momentum. I mean, if Murray is four one up in the second set, and obviously he's basically serve out to to yeah, it was two breaks up, yeah, yeah, to to win the tournament, and he found himself in a complete dogfight at five four on his serve to win the cha- to win the championship, become world number one, the whole lot. If he loses that game, 
he's serving underarm in the third set. I mean, the guy is beaten, like absolutely beaten, destroyed. Uh, and you know, it's 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 like the 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 game. There was still another set to be to be played for Djokovic to go on and win if he wins that game and breaks him again and wins in a tiebreaker or whatever. But that that was it. The game, the entire game, was there in that moment uh, for Djokovic, and you know, it it it, it just didn't happen. Murray like. Almost by default, the last two points were shots, uh, uh, two errors by by Djokovic. But I mean, it, it's it's on such small margins, really, that that big sporting events like that are actually decided. A uh, stunning achievement to have the wherewithal to keep going for Andy Murray, not just yesterday, but I mean, in the last few years, when yeah. first Federer, Nadal, and latterly Djokovic have played some of the best tennis of all time, and to be still going at the end of it, and to be world number one. I know there isn't an argument. Well, he's number one now because the rest of them are all falling off the pace which is true to a point. I mean, uh, Djokovic is looking pretty good for the first half of this year. He's had his own problems in the latter half, but Murray's been the one who's been there and has been able to capitalise on others' misfortunes. Yeah, and uh, I think people, uh, he's a different sort of player to the other three, and especially to Djokovic and Nadal. I think for a lot of people, that's the most enjoyable part of it, that just this the pure energy and power of Djokovic and Nadal and the relentlessness, as opposed to moments of brilliance, have gotten them to where they are. Uh, whereas Andy Murray's just using his brain over it's and pretty over. Pretty relentless he, as well. He's though. got he's gotten yeah. a lot fitter and stronger over the years, but he still he can't match them, or he certainly can't match Djokovic I, for that. There were points uh, being played in that game last night where I was like, maybe the referee should just go in here and just call this point for one player or the other because it seemed like it was literally <laughs> never going to end. We have lives to get, we have Monday morning at work to get to here, lads. The Guardian's Barney Rone has written some great stuff about Murray, so we'll get into that with him after we talk to Matt Williams in Sydney and Jerry Thornley in studio in Dublin. Jerry, how are you? Good, thanks. I'm going to put a quote to you, Jerry, and you're going to have to guess who wrote this okay. over the weekend. The epic in Chicago a fortnight ago and this quite wonderful test match in a freezing Dublin last evening have established beyond doubt the identity of the two best teams in the world at present and both are ahead of the rest by by a street yeah I know I read it well hang on hold on other people didn't read it so they had to revive me with smelling salts in Mulligan's pub last night never mind Carlsberg when I read that yeah Stephen Jones our friend Stephen Jones Sunday Times writer not usually a big uh, champion of Irish rugby but if Stephen Jones is saying it Jerry it must be yeah I know it got me thinking I I don't think are on the streets ahead of England at all I think it's um it's slightly (laughs) over the top but I do think they've been two wonderful test matches which is made for a memorable November and I think that Ireland have gone blow for blow and almost point for point over two matches with the All Blacks, who by some distance are the best team in the world, shows how far they've progressed in the last year. And um, certainly it's, it's, it's looking like it's going to set up the Six Nations um, very interestingly, particularly when you think that Ireland are at home to England on the very last Saturday of the yeah. tournament. No, it's set up nicely. Uh, forgetting about the argument that they're streets ahead mm. of England, is there an argument that they're ahead, that they are the second best team, that we are the second best team if we're going to be all patriotic about it? Well, the world rankings are going to shove us up to fourth today. Isn't that right? Ireland yeah. moving up to fourth. Um, ah, I don't know. I don't think Ireland are streets ahead of England. No, okay. I don't. I don't. I think, I think Ireland have progressed hugely and have competed really well with the All Blacks. Um, and they're developing depth when you think of players like Van de Fleer and Gary Ringrose and Tyke Furlan and how they've done in this November window. And you think of the impact Sean O'Brien's had on his return and how well Jamie Heasel was still playing. But they're still very heavily dependent on key individuals, as we also saw on Saturday, that if Conor Murray's off his game and if Johnny Sexton's off the pitch and Robbie Henshaw's off the pitch, 
they lose a little bit of shape and direction in their attacking game and they're not quite the team they were then in Chicago. Is that a worry for you, Matt? Because this is something that we had hoped we'd move past being too reliant on individuals. But I guess when you lose three of your best players early on, it's going to affect things. And Joe Schmidt said afterwards himself, look, there wasn't much shape to it really, uh, but it was, it was effort that was getting us through the game. Is it a concern that the shape went awry despite having, what were the stats again, the 66% possession, 70% territory? It's a it's a difficult question to answer with a yes or no because when you lose uh, an out half of the calibre of Sexton, you know any team in the world, with the exception of New Zealand, who have uh, you know two fantastic out halves in uh, uh, in their team, um, when you lose your top out half, usually that really does belt your team around. And uh, when you have got someone like Sexton who's you know, pretty much an all-time great. Nolan have been blessed having Agara and then Sexton uh, for, uh, playing in that number 10 jersey, you know, back, back 15, 17 years now to have these two main protagonists in that in that role. When you lose Sexton in particular, I think that does throw you around, as it would any team. Um, you know, coming to this week's game, you know, Australia have struggled for many years in that number 10 jersey, and it's only been the last... 12 months really that Foley has really stepped up to the mark and, and played some really great rugby and, and Australia have, have benefited from his position there. If you remove Foley from that Wallaby side, well, you know, they struggle a bit to, as well. Uh, Quake Cooper's not the player that uh, that Foley has developed into. So it, it's it's quite natural and it's, it's in most countries in the world, especially when you have an outstanding player like Johnny. So... It would be great if if Paddy Jackson stepped up and was absolutely as dominant and as controlling uh, as as Sexton was. And we saw Paddy play his heart out in in, uh, in South Africa, but he's not a big man, and Johnny is a big man. There's a whole lot of of other attributes that Johnny Sexton brings to to the uh, the table. But um, and Henshaw again is growing, and I think I, I love watching him play. He's really getting better, and I think he's got the potential to become a a very high quality international uh, inside centre, um, but again, you know, when you when you lose someone like that, after we've lost O'Driscoll and Darcy, and we're just trying to get a, a coordinated centre pairing back and established, they are massive, massive blows to, for any team, especially playing against, uh, as Jerry rightly says, the best team in the world by a considerable margin. I don't want to come across as a whinging Irishman, Jerry, just in mm. case any New Zealanders yeah. are listening to this podcast, but. They have had two players cited, so I guess that's in a way that's a relief. We, we weren't totally imagining uh, what we were seeing out there. No, not at all. I mean, I think that uh, just shows you, you you don't you you beat the All Blacks and they don't take very kindly to it. And it was very clear that part of their approach on Saturday was to physically intimidate Ireland, and win the physical war first and foremost. It was not the fluent performance you expect, come to expect from the All Blacks, and that's a mark of respect in some in some levels for the Irish team. I think that. Uh, there were too many high hits and coming after the uh, World Rugby diktat last week, I thought it was extraordinarily poor officiating by Jacko Paper and, and indeed John Mason, the TMO, and all his, all the team of officials. Again, when it comes to Paper? Yeah, again. He's just not convincing. I mean, if the All Blacks can um, have a scenario whereby they don't get Wayne Barnes for three years because the way he refereed their World Cup quarterfinal against France and Cardiff, then I'd like it very much if Ireland didn't see this fella again for three years, quite frankly, because... He allowed Johnny Sexton to be buffeted by the French in Paris last February. No doubt about it. Cheap shots there. Cheap shots on Saturday. I think 
the Irish Times Sports Supplement, page one today, you look at the picture of Sam Kane going into Robbie Henshaw, it completely disabuses the notion, as claimed by Steve Hansen, that that was a clash of heads. It's quite, nor does it go along with John Mason's view, the TMO, that he did wrap his arms around um, Henshaw. You can quite see, clearly see that his arm is completely straight and stiff and he's connecting with his shoulder first into Henshaw's head. I think he wrapped around eventually. Eventually, yeah, but look, at the point of impact, you can clearly see there that he um, is connecting with his uh, shoulder into Henshaw's head. I think that that certainly merited yellow, maybe even a red. If it was a penalty, then it sure, surely merited yellow. It just made no sense. It was only a penalty. I thought that was an extraordinary um, verdict to come up with. Um, and, you know, when Rory Best made several entreaties to him to review things he wouldn't, yet when Kieran Reid did, he, he did. He looked back at the Sam Kane one. Um, what was the other one? There was, well, he's been cited, and so has Fekatoa. That was just disgraceful. I mean, that, that if you saw that, uh, you know, he, he led with a stiff arm across, very high across Zebo. He was he was lucky to merely get yellow, in my view. And I think they both deserve to be cited. Steve Hansen's defence is that this is a game of moving parts, high speed. Everything's happening at different angles. But these players are in control of every last millimetre of their body, every last millisecond. The way the All Blacks work in every other facet of the game, whether it be a ruck, a kick, a pass, is perfection or down close to perfection. And then when it comes to brutality, it's like, oh, we're just a little bit off there. Sorry that uh, I came in flying with a clothesline at head height mm-hmm. at a guy who I could see for 10 metres. Fekato was lining up Zebo for at least 10 metres. Yep. Um, it, wa- it wasn't even as if Zebo was clean through. There was three other uh, New Zealand defenders there. I don't think they were even smart about it. It wasn't as if they had to be canny in the Richie McCaw days of it. Um, Matt, he's spoken brilliantly in the past about how New Zealand are ref differently. Spoke after the 2011 uh, World Cup final, how essentially France won that game. France won that game, but New Zealand were ref- refereed differently. This was on a different level because of brutality. It reminded me of the 2000 2005 Lions Tour, it was really annoying, it was worrying, it was worrying for the game. Uh, the fact that it was Pepper again, who, like, he, he must have gone into that game a little bit worried about how he refereed the Ireland France game and the reaction to that. Dave Kearney out for uh, quite a while after that due to like a really violent tackle. Uh, and for the exact same thing to happen, <laughs> for the exact same thing to happen to Simon Zebo, uh, and then also no punishment. It's just an incredible reaction by the referee, as you say, the TMOs, the assistant refs, World Rugby, and the New Zealand players, and the New Zealand management, Matt, and they're the New Zealand media. Strong stuff. Matty, what are your thoughts on it? <laughs> I'm actually giggling, boys. It's New Zealand. They've been doing it for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. That's how they play, and that's how they treat the game. And, you know, look, I don't agree with it at all, but am I surprised? Absolutely not. I actually uh, was talking to my New Zealand mate of mine, and uh, and I've been winding him up for the last two weeks. It's been a great 14 days, but, um, you know, he he just said this is going to be war, and of course it is, and that's the way they play. And, and all the things Simon said, you know, remind him of Brian O'Driscoll's lines to him. I can go back, Ken Catchpole, the greatest Australian scrum half of the 1960s. His, his career was finished because he was pulled out of the ruck uh, um, by a New Zealand player and had one leg trapped in the ruck and snapped all his adductor muscles. So, you know, this is, that was Colin Mead, the last New Zealand no, that, that was a red card then, was it? He didn't get a red card uh, then, no. Mate, mate, well, look, I haven't got the exact stats, but I, I know I've, I've said on this program a few years ago that for every... 11 penalties, uh, a South African got um, a, a yellow card. For every 12 penalties, an Australian got it. For New Zealand, now this was around 
two two years ago, three years ago, just just mid mid between the cups. For every forty three penalties against the New Zealand side, there was a yellow card. So there is absolutely no doubt that the New Zealanders have been refereed different, and they've been refereed differently for many years. And they get away with blue murder, and they have done. And you know, for, and Steve's a real, Steve is a really nice guy. You know, I like him. I've known him many years, and I've great respect for him. He's just. He's just blowing the cards, isn't he? You know, there was no doubt they came out. And, and I don't think they came out with a, an intent to, to have high tackles and, and to bash people. And, but I would agree with, with with Simon's point. These guys know what they're doing. They came out super aggressive, super pumped up, more than a bash Island up. And that that they lost control and they should have been. That's why we've got the officials there. And that's why we have the team. That's why we have these things to protect players and to say when you break the law, it can't happen. But look, New Zealand have, have, have been above the law for many, many years. And I'm not surprised that uh, of what occurred. And it's, it's not good for the game, but it hasn't been good for the game. But generation after generation of officials, be it IRB or World Rugby as it is now, um, they, they don't do anything about it. And it will continue until something is done about it. But they can't come out and do that. But they can, and they have, and they have done it for a long time. And until someone stands up, they will continue to do it. Jerry, New Zealand media and management, Steve Hansen. Steve Hansen didn't specifically reference Sexton, actually, but he did mention neck rolls. And the, you know, some of the media who've been listening to New Zealand talked about Sexton's tackle and Barrett, the, the try-saving tackle, which wasn't given as a try-saving tackle. They, they reckon that he dotted it down. But that that was an, a neck roll and... Hansen referenced other things that were going on that weren't seen from the Irish point of view. Were there two teams at it? Well, I watched it again last night, late into the night, because I wanted to see it again, partly before I came on this. I just, I just wanted to see it again, because in the, in the heat of the battle from the upper tiers of the Aviva Stadium, you can see a little bit of cheap shots, you can see the slow motion replays, whatever, on the big screen, but I just wanted to sit down and go through it. Um, and for me, like, there were 12 instances referenced to the siding commissioner, who was born in New Zealand. And, and has been in Canada since the late 80s and was unable to attend because he was, became unwell on Friday night. And of those, 11 involved foul play by New Zealand players. Now, this might have been instigated by the Irish management, I don't know, but even so, it's, and, and there are two sightings and both are all blacks. So there were 14 penalties to four. There were two yellow cards, both all blacks. They're the facts. You know, Steve Hansen and the New Zealand media can argue about the facts all they want, but are the perception, but they are the actual facts. And it, it clearly portrays a side like Ireland who conceded four penalties in either game. Um, no acts of foul play that I could see going through it. The, the Sam Kane one, it's, his, his leg gets trapped in a clear out by Sean O'Brien and Jamie Heaslip. That forced him to go off. There were, I didn't see any cheap high shots from Irish players. I saw truckloads from, and they were clearly targeted Conor Murray. They came through in him a lot. And I just don't think, I think Jack O'Paper and the match officials failed in their primary duty as officials. And that's player welfare, taking care of players. And they just failed in that regard. And I, I attach more blame to them because I, I agree with Matt. There is one rule for the All Blacks a lot of the time. That's the perception. You think there was a gouging incident during the rugby championship that never that was ever cited. Um, and again on Saturday, it, it, I can't believe that if South Africa played like that, and were as guilty of that many cheap shots that they wouldn't have been punished more severely. Is that unusual that the deciding commissioner is from New Zealand? Well, is, he represents the Canadian represents Canada, Rugby Union, okay, right. but he was born in Taranaki and reared in New Zealand and then moved to Canada in the late okay. 80s. Matt, this, uh, 
you know, we're, we're talking now in an era, and we talked to you quite recently on the show about about the issue of concussion and, and you know everything attached to rugby. There's a lot of analysis of it now. Rory Best himself said after the game, "Look, I've got kids. You know, I I, I, I want to see a game that's safer and that less people are getting stretchered off during." So, on the one hand, you've got that big groundswell that's going on, and the IRB issuing the World Rugby issuing these edicts and so on. But if the re- referees uh, can't or refuse to referee the top team in the sport properly, it's not a great, it's not a great sign in that battle. Oh, and the referees are humans, human beings, and the, the and you know we always joke about the New Zealanders, and they're highly organised and highly intelligent uh, organisation. They are phenomenal in what they're doing with their sport in New Zealand at the moment. They they are so far ahead of everyone else in their thinking. Um, that, that that it is quite extraordinary when you meet these guys and, and talk to them about the programs they have, which I'm very fortunate that I, and lucky I get the chance to talk to them a lot. And I, I, I try and learn from them. But one of the things they try and do is intimidate the officials. And uh, look, Australia's done it for many years in cricket. They do it. Georgie Gregan refereed games very, very well, I thought, from when he, when he was captain. So I'm not saying that, that we're innocent. Martin Johnson did it very, very effectively. But the New Zealanders definitely um, intimidate, for want of a better term. In what way? Uh, effective. How, how did they do that? Well, mate, the, certainly they put um, they put pressure on the on the official. The way the officials are judged, I think, has a massive part to play in it. Because if the New Zealanders come out and say you're not a good referee, that that knocks your career around. And we we forget. And I'm not supporting this line. I'm just saying we forget the referees have a career as well. And this is, to me, has always been the biggest problem, is how we judge, how the referees are judged and rewarded um, with uh, next with promotions within the game, how they are judged on their performance. So the performance of the referees is, is, is I think, intrinsically wrong in how they are adjudicated. And instead of getting good, safe games of rugby, they are looked at as saying, well, what did you miss and or, or what did you get wrong? And so we, we have produced a lot of referees. Now, you only had to look at, at Nigel Owens, and Nigel's a fantastic referee. He's a guy's refereed teams I've coached for 10 years, and I've got huge respect for him. He had a terrible game refereeing New Zealand against Australia in Eden Park, and he got things really wrong. And and it's it's the best in the business are intimidated by what New Zealand will say about them post-match. And they have buried guys' careers and, and they have survived other people's careers. And, and it, is, it is a very big flaw in our game that they can get away with this. But not only that, that they are relying on the flawed um, evaluation process of our officials to support their case. And, and it, I've said this for many years, Jerry's heard me talk about it. The greatest problem in rugby is not about head knocks, not about any of this, it is the officiating. And there is no other sport in the world that I can can come think about that has roughly hasn't changed since the 1950s. Now they've got some other technological uh, issues on it, but when you go to all these other games, there's two officials on the field: basketball, water polo, American football, all uh, field hockey. They all have multiple officials, and they've all developed and changed and grown to get a better result for the for the athlete and for the supporters watching the game. We're still dealing in the same way that when I played and when my dad played and when my grandfather played. And and it, the New Zealanders delve into this or purposefully, purposefully, and do do intimidate the outcome. Well, well they have TMOs the now and, and all sorts. Matty, surely they have moved on quite a lot in that way. 
mate, they, they, they have had have fought again. If the referees would not have the TMOs unless a lot of coaches through my generation just stood there and and had to come out. And mate, mate, when I when I was coaching Scotland, we got they, they refused to have TMOs on certain plays, uh, and and games were won and lost. And I believe it was actually a game that Michael Checker was refereeing, um, Stade Francais. A coaching staff from say the referee got all the blocking plays wrong that they were forced because it was on national television. They were forced to go back and, and bring these parts in, and the referees themselves have fought tooth and nail against it, um, and and it, it 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 has not that they resist every bit of of uh, change and growth. Uh, forward, in my my opinion, now the referees will probably be jumping up and down saying that, but but I cannot. Um, in all honesty, say that I believe that that's not the case. I believe that that is the case. And, and that what is said publicly and what's said behind closed doors, and I've been behind the closed doors, are two very, very different different uh, areas. You know, the, we, we, the World Cup in 2011 was terrible, and we also know that the World Cup in 1995, the final of the World Cup, was was uh, had, was doctored. Now, I'm not saying the, the referee had anything to do with that, but we got problems in the game that we're not allowed to talk about. I can't. I, can't I, I have other great suspicions in the game, and I've been told I'll be sued if I bring them up. And, and you know, there, there are huge problems with our officiating, and that that we are not dealing with because a lot of the people in world rugby don't want to talk about those problems. And and we get we we got that game the other day from an official, in my opinion, who who is fearful of his career and what what sending off a New Zealand player would do to his career. I'm not sure it's even just their career. I think it's it's such a massive statement to send off any rugby player at any time, but especially a New Zealand player uh, in a tight game that might end up in the, them losing that game. But Jerry, Maddie's there talking about you know referees and personalities. Um, say with uh, balls that go up in the air now, they've where rugby have been really strict on somebody challenging somebody who's already up in the air. So if a fullback jumps for a high ball, he practically can't be touched anymore. Um, and the power has sort of been taken out of the hands of the referees in a lot of ways because if there's any sort of a challenge there, it's a penalty or a yellow or a red mm. and uh, the game moves on. And, you know, not everybody agrees with it and sometimes there's real 50-50 calls. But overall, I think it's kind of worked. It's made it a bit safer. Uh, there's cleaner catches in the air, as you saw quite a few t- times on Saturday. But then why don't they do that with headshots and, and high tackles and dangerous play? Jacko Pepper, whatever his opinion is on whether that's a high tackle by Fekitoa or whether it's a red or yellow... That shouldn't really be his decision. If somebody tackles somebody around the neck or the head, even if it's kind of 50-50 or might be accidental, let's just have that be a red card because I think that makes the defender think differently from that point on and actually makes the game, it makes rugby a better sport because ultimately if defences are thinking differently about the way they can approach the guy who's running at them, defences have to, you know, they have to stop for a millisecond and just judge the way they're going to go at it as opposed to just going full bore at a guy, putting all their energy and power into it and, and worrying later about whether they hit him around the neck or the head. So it changes not just the safety of the game but also the structure of the game because defences have one more thing to think about. Yeah, and of course... Simon, Simon, can I throw in there? If you think back to Elaine Roland in the World Cup in New Zealand, yep. he sent off uh, Sam Warburton for a lifting tackle. Yeah. And it was hugely controversial. It was a shock, was yeah. Hugely controversial. But it stopped... It, it, we don't get those tackles anymore. They're out of. The well, Robbie Henshaw was uh, Robbie Henshaw was spear tackled. Yeah, yeah, but that, as you're saying, they're reacting to it now. Now you don't see that tackle because the referee Alan Ron was very brave in doing what he did. 
and we that that has right through the game that stopped. If you go to a junior game now and any kid lifts even accidentally, because it is it can happen accidentally with momentum, that boy's taken off the field and counselled and told what to do, and that's a really good thing. The power is in the referee's hands, but they've got to be brave enough to uh, to do it. The biggest single problem in the game at the moment, and the most vexed issue in the game at the moment, is the issue of high hits and concussion, and they are related, very evidently, with the Sam Kane hit on Robbie Henshaw. Shoulder, st- straight arm, in- initial point of contact, into his head. Now, if World Rugby are going to be serious about trying to reduce the numbers of concussion in the game, they have to start with high hits. It's my view that this came into Rugby Union on the back of more and more uh, defence coaches with rugby league back end, backgrounds, ball and all tackles, preventing offloads, making a bigger impact, and they're going to have to. Re- I think Saturday's game highlighted as much as any one other aspect of this game. They've got to reduce the height of the hits, and the only way they do that is by punishing the perpetrators at when when they happen on the pitch. And there's an addendum to all of that. This game has got a massive global audience. The biggest game in world rugby this weekend. And it's not a great advertisement for the sport when something like that goes relatively unpunished. If you've got young kids and parents of young kids watching this game, it's not a good advertisement for the sport. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about changing rules or at least changing them maybe at underage or whatever. But if you could just at least enforce the existing rules fully, then... You well, this is, this is rugby in its, in, its most, in its clearest shop window, if you like, yeah. as a sport, as an entertainment. So the, this is where, the, this is where the, the lines in the sand have to be drawn. All right, well, the focus starts, we'll start switching to Australia. So in the before next we go on, we, yeah. should, we should also just say, like, the All Blacks are a wonderful rugby side and they're raising the bar. They are the standard bearers. And even amid the mayhem and madness of last Saturday when it was full on and brutal and a belter of a game, like, the performance of Bowden Barrett, the way yeah. he bestrode that match, he was the creator in chief of all three tries and scored one of themselves. He was essentially the biggest difference between the two teams. It was almost like he was playing a different sport from everybody else. So you have to acknowledge these things as well. Yeah, I got the sense he looked like a guy who was really enjoying it out there, mm. Matty, which isn't always the case. An, an out half, a flashy out half, for want of a better term, often isn't a massive fan of these games where his team is under a lot of pressure and he's not getting a lot of possession, but he seemed to love it. He's. Well, firstly, aren't New Zealand extraordinary? The Carter retires, and, uh, and then Barrett steps in seamlessly. And not only does he just look okay, he you know he's a fabulous player. Uh, his pace is just extraordinary. Everything about it. And I think that's the reason. I think he's had to play second fiddle for so long that every day he pulls on that black jersey and gets to step out on the pitch. It's happy days. You know how good is this? And he's playing with a lot of joy in his rugby, and he's great to watch. He's um, he's a beautiful footballer. He takes the ball very flat. He's got exceptional footwork. Uh, he he brings his other teammates into the game, and 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 the fact that he's such a threat and he's such a good passer and a good kicker, you know, he's he's just a he's just a real deal. And um, again, there's a production line there for them. You know, the, the young uh, out half who played for for New Zealand schools this year, I can tell you, he's going to be another one that's coming through the system. They've just got a production line of them, and right now. Barrett's had to sit back and wait his time, and now it's his time in the sun, and every second he's uh, he's making it count. I'm not trying to plug the book, but the book I did in Connacht, um, there's a <laughs> chapter in it with Dave Ellis, and I got to sit down with him for a few hours, and I'd never had an audience with Dave Ellis before. He's a really intriguing character, travelled the world, but he ended up in New Zealand for about 10 years, running the IRANZ, um, the academy there that Murray Megstead set up. And an, all, an extraordinary list of all blacks passed through this in some shape or form for those couple of weeks or for longer or whatever. And when I asked him who's the best player that came through it, without any hesitation at all, he said Aaron Cruden. 
He just said, you only had to tell him right. something once and he got it. He had a vision of everywhere everything was on the pitch. He was the best player that came through it. I don't know whether Barrett did as well, but Cruden is just back up. And then, of course, you can shift Barrett to full back and it just gives you another dimension to your game. Did you get the sense, Jerry, that New Zealand, even if we had converted some of those chances, which we did create, that New Zealand probably would have had enough in the tank regardless. They, they weren't going to lose that game. Sean O'Brien could have scored oh, that's two the tries one. easily. That's the one. I mean, easily those two tries. That Barrett makes the best try-saving tackle of the match as well. Yeah, that was Barrett as well. That was Barrett that, yeah. and Sean O'Brien after Jamie Heasel had a f- fabulous match as well. O'Brien was off the Richter scale, how good he was. Man, did he vindicate a selection we were talking about it last yeah. week. Three cleared turnovers, 20 carries. It was just an astonishing performance. And if he... and. The one at the, at the peel off the line where they set up the dummy mall and it sucked in the entire New Zealand pack, the tilt he's going at, the momentum, like the Tullow Tank at full pelt. If Def- he holds, definitely in. I think he's in. Yeah. That's 13-14. You know, rugby's a little bit like football. You know, goals change matches. Well, tries change matches as well. Momentum. 13-14 with another quarter of the game to go. New Zealand down to 14 men at the time. I don't know. Yeah, maybe New Zealand would have won. They certainly deserve to win. You can't argue with three tries to nil, but uh, it would have been very interesting to see. We're looking forward to next week already. Matt, what did you make of Australia's performance? I guess they clung on at the end, but uh, it's another step towards a possible Grand Slam, which I know is a big deal. Oh, I thought it was a a really entertaining match. Um, uh, Sort of a bit counterintuitively, it was the French performance that I really enjoyed seeing. I think that's, that's the best game I've seen France play in, in several seasons, and the style of play was was wonderful. Uh, and if the French had their kicking boots on, they would have won that game comfortably. They missed so many uh, uh, opportunities from the boot, from uh, conversions and penalties and so on. And then right at the very end, I thought they were exceptionally impatient when they took the drop goal. Uh, ha- having said all that... Um, you know, to send out basically the second-tier Australian, that's, that's probably a bit unjust to them, but with a number of changes to that Australian side uh, against the top, the, the, the French national team in Paris, and to come away with a win, says a lot about the spirit that Michael Cech has got into this Australian side. And they're, they're playing with a lot of pride and a lot of, a lot of effort. They've got, you know, Australia and Ireland, as I've said so many times, very similar. Our depth is just minuscule in Australia. The pool is so shallow. And the opportunity to play some young guys and to give them chances takes a very brave coach to do it. And I really admire what Michael did last week. And I'm, I'm delighted it didn't backfire on him because certainly there were people lined up here with knives to jam it into him. So all that, how stupid, you know, you pick the second side. But he brought through a lot of young guys, especially the front rowers there. And, and uh, uh, you know, gave, brought Genya back and so on, even though he's an older guy, but gave him some valuable time because... They're very fatigued, uh, the Southern Hemisphere guys at the moment, especially the, the Australians and the New Zealanders. They've played an extra game. and The travel for the New Zealanders has been extraordinary. But, you know, th- this Australians are, are playing a style of game that will trouble Ireland. But their ball movement and the way that they are changing the point of attack is very different to New Zealand, very different to South Africa. And it, it, it will trouble Ireland. I think the, the biggest thing Ireland have to get right this week is, is their defence. Of course, it is a very, very different uh, attacking structure that Michael plays compared to uh, what they've played against New Zealand. And, and it's, it's been very smart. Um, I, I take my hat off to Michael. I, I've, I've, with, with very, very limited resources, um, Michael's doing a, a particularly good job uh, with them. And I think, just like Jerry said with momentum, uh, they played exceptionally well against Wales. They were a bit unlucky against Scotland, and and but got away with it. And then they did the same. They 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 were were lucky against France. When I say they were unlucky against Scotland, they dropped a lot of ball when they created opportunities. 
And against France, you know, as I said, the French should have should have won that game. But Australia still played played very good rugby. So I, I think they've got a bit of self confidence. They've only got ten days to go, and they'll be saying, "Listen, we're only two games away from something pretty big here. Let's uh, let's have a crack at this." Because even the '84 team, which is the last team to win the win the Grand Slam, they didn't beat France. They didn't play France, as, as a matter of fact. So they they've got an opportunity to do something that no one in Australia rugby history's done and and I think that they'll lift and they'll jump for it uh, and and they won't have their eye on England just yet because they the Australians know that Ireland is their bogey side they, that's the team that always stands up and can throw Australia because the Irish don't fear Australia like they perhaps fear New Zealand and 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 South Africa that you know the Australians are much more equal to them their winning record against Australia is much much higher than the other countries so it, it'll be a very very interesting game on Saturday. Matty, if Joe Schmidt does come up with a plan to deal with that new style of Australian attack, how would you rate this autumn series from Joe's perspective, from Ireland's perspective? <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's who'd, be a, who'd be a coach? If they beat Australia, everyone will say it's great. And if they lose, everyone will say it's been poor. I don't think you can possibly say it's poor. Um, the game in, in uh, Chicago alone, you know, was historic. <laughs> But again, it falls into into the problem that Irish rugby has had for 111 years. There's one win, one great win, but we can't seem to back it up with another win. Yeah. Now, the guys performed. They tried so hard on Saturday. Like they, You can't fault their effort, and it is against the best team in the world. And there were all things we just spoke about. You know, They lost players early. There was foul play, all these things. But the bottom line is they didn't win. And if they don't win against Australia, then you've got to say, well, what's our mental – where are we mentally? We know we've got IRB rankings and all that. Not, I really don't like getting into the IRB rankings, but it's how you go head-to-head. And to, to, to be 50-50 against New Zealand is a, is a pretty reasonable ask from anyone, especially when you haven't done it for 100 years. Now, the New Zealanders were fatigued. Their second rowers were out. They were vulnerable in Chicago. Bad luck. Bad luck. They got taken advantage of their vulnerability. I think this Australia game is a huge day for the team uh, emotionally and and mentally because you, the, victories and defeats help you grow or diminish you as a, a, as a team. And a victory against Australia will really help this Irish team grow. And they've got a lot of good young guys coming through. You know, you've got some, a lot of old heads in there, but you've got a lot of really good young guys coming through. The big problem for Ireland is going to be who's fit, who's ready, who's on their feet, who can who can come on, and take that uh, take the place. Um, you know, Johnny Sexton and a, and a hamstring. You know, that's that's going to be hard. You just can't see him making it. But and, and the other number of head knocks, you you also got to say there's a number of other players who are engraved out, and that might prove to be the the, the difficulties. But look, as as long as Ireland keep the attacking mindset that they've come to in this series, I think you've got to say it's a, a success. Because and I know we had, we had words the other week when we were talking about Joe Schmidt. It, it is the team's lack of attacking mindset over the past two years that has frustrated me and has, in my opinion, led to a lot of failures. Now, that wasn't the way Joe Schmidt coached that I saw him coach and grow and, and really respected. Now, he seems to have gone back to that and and if long as the team keeps that attitude and approach, it's not always going to work, but it'll work more than often. It's going to work more often than not having that attacking mindset. And that's to me, is a big change. That's getting us moving forward. Because I can tell you, you the quick question about England, you know, 
everyone talks about Eddie Jones. What's that? He's brought that mindset to to England. They're they're going to go out and they're going to score tries, and they have been scoring lots of tries in games. They played very very well here in Australia in in the in the summer in June, and they're playing pretty well at the moment. And they're they're a force to be reckoned with, because of their mental state and their attitude. And Ireland need to match that. Jerry, last quick word. Are you confident at this stage of the week? Well, even before Matt used the words, I would have said that mentally and emotionally, this is Ireland's toughest game of November window. Because yeah, it's different. You you scale the mountaintop twice to play the greatest side in the world. That's you know that's not a, that's easy to get up for in some senses. It was a marvelous challenge, breaking history, 111 years, trying to back it up. In between times, you freshen up the team. You give eight new caps against Canada, and you run up 50 points. Now you're a bit battered and bruised. You come off defeat. You've got to scale that mountaintop again against an Australian side who are going for history themselves, who had a really really good tour, have come through a very tricky post-World Cup cycle, as they invariably have to do, thanks to what the wondrous work that Michael Cech has done. And they remember not turning up for the first 20 minutes in the Aviva Stadium two, two Novembers ago. And that ain't going to happen again. So I think it's going to be a very difficult game for Ireland. And we'll know how difficult when we get some injury news later today over the next couple of days. Yep, fair enough. Jerry, brilliant. Matt, thanks very much. Cheers, thanks. In the final order again. And the A. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the drink to get off. Get him off the field. That was diabolical. Get him off the field. That's just typical of what he is. Get him walking. They don't like it. Walk it, Campbell. You've got it in bottle. If you've got it in bottle, Campbell, it should walk. That was absolutely diabolical. That should be sent off. He's going to be a yellow card. A gasp, Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the jersey goes off. You'll ball this game, Campbell. A gasp, Neil Francis posts a question poses a question I should say in yep. his column this week. It's an event. Should we follow the Kiwis? Should we apply the same killer instinct to win at all costs? The issue with that being, I don't think we can, judging by what the boys were saying there in particular, Matt, we don't have the status to get away with it. Mm. Sean O'Brien throws a bit of a half punch in the World Cup, immediately cited. Uh, well, look back to the to the World Cup last year when every player from, like, it was graded, the smaller the nation, the bigger the suspension you got. I mean, actually, on a, on a broader point, I actually just went looking, uh, just uh, as a way of perhaps trying to illustrate a point, there was one red card given on the field in the World Cup last year and 15 suspensions that resulted in games in games being missed passed down and this is a this has been allowed to grow in rugby where the idea of giving a red card is just like complete anathema you know it, it just it's ne- never done cannot be done but the idea that on a monday morning you can hand out a one or two or six game suspension well, that's absolutely fine. That's just part of the game. That'll be dealt with by the citing commissioner. Yeah, you I mean, <laughs> there's so many of these incidents are not uh, citing, uh, you know, sightings in uh, the sort of way that you would think in football or in the GA, where it's something has happened way away from the ball and there's no, you know, reasonable expectation on the referees to have seen what the, what the incident is. It's basically you give a yellow card to a player in rugby and it's like, oh, well, the sighting commissioner will deal with that if it's actually serious, even though there's a TMO available right there. I mean, at some stage, you know, like, again, it's a, even the O'Brien uh, incident a, against France in uh, the World Cup, the meeting went on for eight hours. Isn't that right? Isn't yeah. that some yeah. ridiculous length of a meeting. Like, what exactly is going on here? You know, that... 
there's foul play there. You make a decision. You entrust the referee to make the decision, not three people, you know, justifying their existence on a Monday morning in a hotel room in Cardiff. That's an issue that a lot of sports face, but I suppose a lot of sports aren't as violent as rugby. Yeah, but and, and it, it's 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 not uh, it's not the case in the GA and football where that scene is where foul play will be decided upon. I mean, in every other sport, it's decided on the field, yeah. and if a grave injustice has been done against a player, they will appeal the decision. I mean, there's no, there, it's not even an appeal. It's it's basically guys deciding on a Sunday morning. You know, having 24 hours to sleep in it, then making a decision on a thing, say, right, okay, we'll cite that. I mean, it takes four days, basically, from the game to the end of the marathon meeting, yeah. you know, in the middle of the night of the following week, to make a decision. And, I mean, and but, sightings came in because of things like eye gouges, which happened at the bottom of Rooks, and gouging is almost gone from the game. That was probably the most disgusting thing you can do in the world of rugby. But, I mean, these high tackles are as dangerous they're way easier to see and on a big screen it's repeated over and over I think it's, in a year I think in a year's time they'll, it, these will be kind of gone from the game it's too yeah. late for Ireland for this game but God the sport needs to realise yeah. how, how, I don't, how I don't bad it is the repercussions I don't know if it will be gone for the game they won't be gone for the game unless they start red carding people as Murph says if they keep letting people away with it and maybe giving them a couple of weeks suspension afterwards I, I don't see how they're going to what, what do you think of Neil Francis's point then? That, that I, I, you no, I think, top, I think it was ruthless. terrible tactics by New Zealand if you want to win a game to do some blatant fouls like that. I think subtle stuff like they used to do with Richie McCaw, that's the way to win games. And some of their offsides when Ireland had a particularly strong scrum, for example, uh, and Kieran Reid literally came around the scrum and just took, tried to take the ball out of the back of the scrum. It's the equivalent in football of Diego Costa being 10 yards offside, then pushing the goalkeeper over and then kick the ball into the goal. That's what some of New Zealand's illegal play my, was like. My point is, Ken, that I don't, think we can approach as it the same way because piece, as Maddie yeah. was saying you New Zealand are in a position where referees are afraid of what they'll say if they come out and and say after a game talk about a referee not being good enough or making mistakes that carries a lot of weight whereas Joe Schmidt says it and I don't think it well, clearly doesn't carry the same well, there's sort of that, weight there's that. So, if we, so if we start doing if we start going mad like that these these cheap shots the fear is that we might actually get the red card or well, at least you, the yellow card you just card. don't get away with them normally no other country gets away with it I mean, there's the the status of Ireland, but also just most referees just won't allow it happen. So you the status of anybody who's not who's not New Zealand. Yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. trying. I'm not trying to paint us as holier than thou and never so giving away penalties. They go low, we go high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the way it's they go be. high, we go just slightly lower. We stay where we are. They, oh, they go where they, they go. In the, they go in the rugby high. context, high is bad. Yeah, they go, so they go high, we go low. We aim for the knees. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Uh, where am I going now, Simon? Oh, yeah, you wanted to play a clip. This is Joe Schmidt. Schmidt was, was funny, actually, talking about the violent element to the game. It was very much... He made it very clear on a number of occasions how pissed off he is without actually saying enough to get himself in trouble. Hmm. There was a lot of we will communicate yeah. through the appropriate channels kind of talk. Here he is talking a bit more about the game itself and the scores conceded. This on Radio 1. I felt we, we didn't have... Uh, as much attacking threat, but but we hung in a lot better, you know. And, and maybe that's maybe that's something we could take as a positive that we uh, we're up against uh, a fully loaded super team, yeah. and um, uh, we restricted to, to you know uh, one try and two half tries. Two half tries. <laughs> well, um, the forward pass for oh, the forward Fekitu, pass, yeah, the potentially second try. Um, Are we going to start sounding like sore losers here if we keep this? Well, up? just to make I, one point, I thought New Zealand were brilliant in attack, way better than us. We didn't execute. There was two Sean O'Brien chances. Payne dropped a the ball. There was just you know four or five golden try opportunities for Ireland. That's the reason we lost. But 
this illegal, dangerous play is a separate thing from the result and from how the, the game panned out. Yeah, I had a, a big discussion with myself yesterday uh, when I read all the papers going you know, quite nuts about the refereeing decisions. I was like, get in tomorrow now, just you know, try and focus on you know, just focus on what happened in the game as opposed to these refereeing decisions. Then I watched a large part of the game back again. I'm like, actually, wait a second. This was terrible. <laughs> and there's really, there's like, what's the point in just accepting the fact that we got beaten up and not saying anything about it? I mean, the fact of the matter is, <laughs> we got, we, we were physically assaulted on the field by these people and we can't stand for it. Naive. Yeah. You're naive. Possibly. Possibly, Ken. Was this external dialogue or internal? Oh, all external. All external. My brain was moving quite slowly. You, the dog. Yep. A bunch of newspapers and television. Yep. Yep. That's all you needed to whip. So now they're picking up. I've, got, so, I've got something uh, to get off my chest. I've been singing the praises of Annie Murray already on the show. Let's bring another confirmed Murray fan into the conversation. The Guardian's Barney Roney. Cheers for taking the call, Barney. Hi there. Uh, pretty staggering stuff. He's won Wimbledon this year. He's won the Olympics. And now he's beaten Novak Djokovic to finish the year as world number one. Do you reckon... I don't know how easy it is to rank the three achievements, but do you think finishing the year as world number one and breaking that dominance of the previous big three is in some ways an even bigger achievement than winning Wimbledon again? Well, in a way, although I know um, there have been Djokovic fans, uh, and he does have fans, um, quite febrile, feral feral fans, um, have been slightly downplaying his achievements, saying... uh, well, you know, he's been a very favourable run of opponents and uh, it's been a different form of the other guys. I don't. I find it hard to rank these kind of achievements. Um, in fact, even without winning the titles that he's won, it's more Murray's methods that interest me and his personality. I just think he's a brilliant role model, no matter whether he wins or not. Uh, as a he makes the most of himself. What is it about his methods that interests you? <laughs> well, it's difficult, isn't it? It's hard to know how to... You, you, put, you impose your own narrative on it, yeah. don't you? I mean, when, I, when I look at Andy Murray, I see a sports person who came through as a gangly 17-year-old. I remember the tennis correspondents being quite amazed by him. Thinking, who is this kid? He's a, he was a skinny, weird, wry, incredibly nervous, sarcastic teenager who didn't look like a professional sportsman, looked like he should be at some boarding school making sarcastic remarks, who's, who's transformed himself, worked out how to play, how to play within his limits. My, my favourite Murray game of the last year was um, at the Australian Open, I think it was, when he beat Thomas Burditch in the semi-final after losing the first set. And, and at one point looking like he was having an off day. But you could see him in that first set, gradually working out, how am I going to play Burditch? How am I going to win this? And as the games got tighter and tighter, and Murray started to reel in his opponent, working out on court how to play this guy. What angles do I need? What pace on the serve? So when Burditch won the first set, Murray actually punched the air and could be seen walking past him as though he'd just gone two sets up, <laughs> while Burditch sort of slumped into his chair and he won the next three straight off. He, he's probably the most intelligent sports person that I've ever seen, certainly uh, playing anything for Britain. Yeah, it's very interesting that, that you single out that part of it because last night all the commentary was watching the BBC and it was all about his heart and his physical and mental robustness because, given that he had played an intensely difficult and long semi-final whereas essentially Djokovic had strolled through to the final. So they were really going down that avenue which you would think of as tra- very traditionally British qualities in a sports person. What you're talking about is a very different thing entirely. Yeah, I agree. I, I think tennis is a bit deceptive as well. It, it's easy to see it as this 
incredible feat of resilience and it's so tense and it's all about bottle isn't it we always said that tim hemman bottled it he lost because he bottled it which obviously wasn't true uh, i think when you get to their level it's it's a mental game it's not so much about grit and and so on it's about uh sort of sporting intelligence and how you apply apply that and murray is he's like a nerd he's like a geek he's like the geek who who conquered the world um, which is meant as a compliment. Um, if every sportsman used their intelligence the way he does, uh, they could probably succeed in the same way. I tweeted my admiration for him last night, Bernie, and I was met with, uh, well, most people agreed, but there was a bit of blowback. Kieran Finn says uh, we'll, he'll probably win BBC Sports personality now, even though he has none. Peter Hatton says the most unbelievably boring sports person, a complete charisma vacuum. I just don't get that at all. Yeah. That's been the thing since he first came through. I think he's hilariously funny. I think he's one of the wittiest sports people I've ever I've ever been in a press conference with. He, he's great. He just is dry, and he refuses to smile on cue and mouth platitudes, which, to be perfectly honest, is fine by me. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's funny that you say that, because I was watching one of the games earlier on in the week, and he was in the middle of his post-match interview. He was on Sky, and it, they were going through. He was standing beside that big screen, and they were showing the stats. And they were. They, he, it was mentioned to him that, oh, your opponent had all these unforced errors. And Murray says, yeah, well, hold on a second there. You say unforced errors, but there's a difference between a double fault at the start of a rally and somebody hitting a ball into the net after a 30-shot rally when you're just absolutely knackered. So he went into this kind of short but very interesting digression on the nature of statistical uh, analysis in tennis. And it was just, it was quite jarring. To be honest with you, I, I was half watching this interview. I was doing some work at the time and suddenly I'm totally engaged. And then it went back to the normal kind of qu- questions and answers. Is, is it just something about... Do some people still mistake his demeanour, the fact that he can look a little bit surly at times with the substance, and there's actually a lot more substance than people realise? Oh, absolutely, yeah. He is a fascinating and very intelligent man who is forced in, into speaking in public and is just incredibly wry, and he's not a bubbly personality. But, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I generally tend to run a mile when I run in someone with a bubbly personality. So that's the fine. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, a lot of it is a slight anti-Scottish feeling as well. There's no doubt there's a part of that. It took it took Wimbledon, the crowd at Wimbledon, a while to, to embrace Murray. And it was interesting seeing him at the O2, which is in a totally different part of London, different crowd, having people genuinely cheering him on, as, as they did at the Olympics as well. A totally different crowd to the usual Wimbledon centre court bunch who look at him and do see a Scottish man uh, who's not Tim Henman did anyway uh, and to having people actually genuinely just really supporting him without any reservations it's very nice to see even now you still think the Wimbledon crowd even after a couple of victories there they still hold no, it I back I don't think so anymore right, but for, a, a for, a long, for a long time though they, they did hanker for the Tim Henman type personality yeah they, they love Tim Henman because he, he's a solicitor's son from Oxfordshire mm-hmm. and he, uh, he looked like a lovely lad he'd be in the uh, Air Force if he wasn't playing tennis as Murray's this gangling, angular Scott, uh, who makes no uh, makes no secret of the fact he feels a little bit uncomfortable around that kind of world. He's openly spoken about quite a range of issues as well. This is a guy who, when he's asked about doping, actually gives you an answer. Or certainly, some of the time, maybe you, you can't give interesting answers every time. Match fixing. Uh, he famously defended his decision to defend. Why you need to defend it, I don't know. But he explained his decision in hiring a female coach when he had Amelie Moresmo in a sport defined by particularly tennis is, is quite well defined by players sticking their head in the sand over any sort of important issues. It seems like Murray is one guy who actually does say some interesting stuff from time to time. Well, I like the way he hired the female coach without 
making a big deal yeah. or preaching. He was actually asked to talk about it, so he did. And then in a truly egalitarian fashion, he got rid of her when he decided the time was right. You know, he, he genuinely is a, a very decent guy, I think. And, and that hiring Marissa had nothing to do with showing people you could hire a female coach. It was just the best decision, and she was the best person for it. And, and that seems like the best way to go about that kind of thing. Uh, he... Um, there's, there's various parts about him. I mean, I, I think it's important that the the English-based Lawn Tennis Association doesn't take too much credit for its success as well, um, given that what Murray's success tells you is if you want to succeed in England or in Britain, uh, leave the country. I mean, he, he went to Spain because he was still knocking up with his brother and his mum, whereas uh, Nadal was playing with top 10 players and practicing with them. And he realized this system was so far behind, he'd never make it unless he took this huge leap to go and train abroad as a teenager. And what his success is, get out of the system if you want to succeed. Um, he's been a godsend, but he also highlights the failings of an incredibly wealthy system. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. All right, listen, Barney, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the call today. All right, thanks. Brilliant stuff there from The Guardian's Barney Rone, who's written excellently on... Andy Murray in the past. The, was it the geek who took over the world he described him as there? I hadn't even thought of it that way, necessarily. But certainly his personality has changed quite a lot. And look, it's not much good unless he's winning and he still has to add a few more majors probably to really sort of cement his legacy. But for what, for what he's done up until now, given the depth of talent in his sport and the fact that he just comes across as fairly... As a guy who's not afraid to actually talk about tricky items as we got into there, mm. I'm a, I remain a Murray fan, Murphy, even if I got two stinging rebukes on Twitter there that I read it. <laughs> That's not going to deter me from the my From the, your vital work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I think that, um, I mean, it, it, Barney makes the point as well. I mean, having a personality, I mean, when has that ever been good, you know? Robbie Savage has a personality. Is that, is that kind of what we're talking about, you know? <laughs> if only Andy Murray was more like Robbie Savage, he'd be the biggest star in the history of British sport. Well, I think Andy Murray's probably happy enough with how he's, how he's doing. In case you're wondering why we aren't focusing on the real story of last night's tennis, the glittering array of A-list celebs in attendance, don't worry, that's covered in depth in today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> well, we talked, in addition to talking about the weekend's football, we talked to David Squires, the cartoonist whose work you might be familiar with from The Guardian. He's got a book out. And the Second Captain's uh, Sports Annual, Volume Bl- 1. Bloody right, Second Captain's Sports Annual, Volume 1. Uh, Abbottstown was the strip... Uh, Strip there, uh, but he's got a book out, the Illustrated History of Football. So we'll talk to him about that, and we also hear from Philip O'Connor in Sweden about some uh, Swedish fans disrespecting some, uh, some football regions. Yeah. yeah, more than disrespecting, <laughs> physically yeah, really, in one case. quite seriously disrespecting. Yeah, yeah that is def- definitely dis- disrespect. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, I think today's message, Ken, is they go low, we go high. No, no. They, they go, go high. high we we go, go high in response, or we go low. That's or the or we give out about them in the media afterwards. Yeah. Which is what exactly? Well, we've got surely we've got more cultural like soft power than New Zealand. They may have the hard muscular power mm. on the rugby field, but we have got a loud whiny voice in the world's media, which we intend yeah. to deploy to <laughs> full effect, like like Bado. 
Yeah. We'll get bottle really? out of this. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get bottle out of this. Yeah. Very, just very disappointing. Sad to see what's become of the game <laughs> in the hands of its custodians, New Zealand. Thanks, bottle. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, guys. Thanks, 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 thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.